at One Day University. We feature hundreds of top-rated professors from Stanford, Harvard, Michigan, Texas, UCLA, and other schools across the world to explore history, music, politics, art, science, and much more. Every Wednesday, our weekly Scholar Newsletter includes five fascinating short video clips of our most notable professors discussing a brand new topic, plus special reports and topical debates as well. Sign up for free at OneDayU.com. That's O-N-E-D-A-Y-U.com. show on civil rights. My name is Barbara Bullen and I'm one of the radio hosts for the New Heights Show on Education and the New Heights Educational Group. I hope you enjoy the show and I'm asking our listeners to consider becoming a sponsor. This show is pre-recorded. This show is based on the life of Frederick Douglass, taken from en.wikipedia.org. After returning to the U.S. in 1847, using $500 equivalent to $48,612 in 2021 given to him by English supporters, Douglas started publishing his first abolitionist newspaper, The North Star, from the basement of the Memorial A.M.E. Zion Church in Rochester, New York, originally Pittsburgh, journalist Martin Delaney was co-editor, but Douglas didn't feel he brought in enough subscriptions and they parted ways. The North Star's motto was, right is of no sex, truth is of no color, God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. The AME Church and North Star joined in the Freedmen community's vigorous opposition to the mostly white American colonization society and its proposal to send free black people to Africa. Douglas also participated in the Underground Railroad. He and his wife provided lodging and resources in their home to more than 400 escaped slaves. Douglas also soon split with Garrison, who he found unwilling to support actions against American slavery. Earlier, Douglas had agreed with Garrison's position that the Constitution was pro-slavery because of the three-fifths clause, the compromise that provided that 60% of the number of slaves would be added to the whole number of free persons for the purpose of apportioning congressional seats and protection of the international slave trade through 1807. Garrison had burned copies of the Constitution to express his opinion. However, Lysander Spooner published 
The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, 1846, which examined the United States Constitution as an anti-slavery document. Douglas's change of opinion about the Constitution and his splitting from Garrison around 1847 became one of the abolitionist movement's most notable divisions. Douglas angered Garrison by saying the Constitution could and should be used as an instrument in the fight against slavery. In September 1848, on the 10th anniversary of his escape, Douglas published an open letter addressed to his former master, Thomas Old, berating him for his conduct and inquiring after members of his family still held by Old. In the course of the letter, Douglas adeptly transitions from formal and restrained to familiar and then to impassioned. At one point, he is a proud parent describing his improved circumstances and the progress of his own four, four young children, but then he dramatically shifts tone. Oh, sir, a slaveholder never appears to me so completely an agent of hell as when I think of and look upon my dear children. It is then that my feelings rise above my control. The grim horrors of slavery rise in all their ghastly terror before me. The wails of millions pierce my heart and chill my blood. I remember the chain, the gag, the bloody whip, the death-like gloom overshadowing the broken spirit of the fettered bondman, the appalling liability of his being torn away from wife and children and sold like a beast in the market. In a graphic passage, Douglas asked Ald how he would feel if Douglas had come to take away his daughter, Amanda, as a slave, treating her the way he and members of his family had been treated by Ald. Yet, in his conclusion, Douglas shows his focus and benevolence, stating that he has no malice towards him personally, and asserts that there is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine, and there is nothing in my house which you might need for comfort which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. In 1848, Douglas was the only black person to attend the Seneca Falls Convention, the first women's rights convention in upstate New York. Elizabeth Cady Stanton asked the assembly to pass a resolution asking for women's suffrage. Many of those present opposed the idea, including influential Quakers James and Lucretia Mott. Douglas stood and spoke eloquent, eloquently in favor of women's suffrage. He said that he could not accept the right to vote as a black man if women could not also claim that right. He suggested that the world would be a better place if women were involved in the political sphere. In this denial of the right to participate in government, not merely the degradation of women and the perpetuation of a great injustice happens, but the maiming and repudiation of one half of the moral and intellectual power of the government of the world. After Douglas's powerful words, the attendants passed the resolution. In the wake of the Seneca Falls Convention, Douglas used an editorial in the North Star to press the case for women's rights. 
He recalled the marked ability and dignity of the proceedings and briefly conveyed several arguments of the convention and feminist thought at the time. On the first count, Douglas acknowledged the decorum of the participants in the face of disagreement. In the remainder, he discussed the primary document that emerged from the conference, a declaration of sentiments and the infant feminist cause. Strikingly, he expressed the belief that a discussion of the rights of animals would be regarded with far more complacency than would be a discussion of the rights of women. And Douglas noted the link between abolitionism and feminism, the overlap between the communities. His opinion as the editor of a prominent newspaper carried weight and he stated the position of the North Star explicitly. We hold women to be justly entitled to all we claim for man. This letter, within a week after the convention, reaffirmed the first part of the paper slogan, Right is of no sex. After the Civil War, when the 15th Amendment giving black men the right to vote was being debated, Douglas split with a Stanton-led faction of the women's rights movement. Douglas supported the amendment, which would grant suffrage to black men. Stanton opposed the 15th Amendment because it limited the expansion of suffrage to black men. She predicted its passage would delay for decades the cause for women's rights to vote. Stanton argued that American women and black men should band together to fight for universal suffrage and oppose any bill that split the issues. Douglas and Stanton both knew that there was not enough male support for women's right to vote, but that an, um, but that an amendment giving black men the vote could pass in the late 1860s. Stanton wanted to attach women's suffrage to that of black men so that her cause would be carried to success. Douglas thought that such a strategy was too risky, that there was barely enough support for black men's suffrage. He feared that linking the cause of women's suffrage to that of black men would result in failure for both. Douglas argued that white women, already empowered by their social connections to fathers, husbands, and brothers, at least vicariously had the vote. Black women, he believed, would have the same degree of empowerment as white women once black men had the vote. Douglas assured the American women that at no time had he ever argued against women's right to vote. Right now, you might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group, educational resources to help reach your goals. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying the New Heights show on education and want to support or donate to our organization, please visit www.newheightseducation.org. And while you're there, check out our online store. Welcome back to the New Heights Show on Education. My name is Barbara Bullen, and I'm the radio host for this show. This show is pre-recorded and focuses on the history of civil rights. A recap of the first segment of the show on Frederick Douglass will continue.
Meanwhile, in 1851, Douglas merged the North Star with Gerrit Smith's Liberty Party paper to form Frederick Douglass's paper, which was published until 1860. On July the 5th, 1852, Douglas delivered an address at Corinthian Hall at a meeting organized by the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. This speech eventually became known as What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? One biographer called it perhaps the greatest anti-slavery oration ever given in 1853. He was a prominent attendee of the Radical Abolitionist National African American Convention in Rochester. Douglass was one of the five names attached to the address of the convention to the people of the, the United States published under the title, The Claims of Our Common Cause, along with Amos No Freeman, James Monroe Whitfield, Henry O. Wagner, and George Boyer Vashon. Like many abolitionists, Douglas believed that education would be crucial for African Americans to improve their lives. He was an early advocate for school desegregation. In the 1850s, Douglas observed that New York's facilities and instruction for African American children were vastly inferior to those for European Americans. Douglas called for court action to open all schools to all children. He said that full inclusion within the educational system was a more pressing need for African Americans than political issues such as suffrage. On March the 12th, 1859, Douglas met with radical abolitionists John Brown, George de Baptist, and others at William Webb's house in Detroit to discuss emancipation. Douglas met Brown again when Brown visited his home two months before leading the raid on Harper's Ferry. Brown penned his professional constitution during his two-week stay with Douglas. Also, staying with Douglas for, one, for over a year was Shields Green, a fugitive slave whom Douglas was helping as he often did. Shortly before the raid, Douglas taking Green with him traveled from Rochester via New York City to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, Brown's communications headquarters. He was recognized there by black people who asked him for a lecture. Douglas agreed, although he said his only topic was slavery. Green joined him on the stage. Brown incognito sat in the audience. A white reporter referring to nigger democracy called it a flaming address by the notorious Negro orator. There in an abandoned stone quarry for secrecy, Douglas and Green met with Brown and John Henry Khaki to discuss the raid. After discussions lasting, as Douglas put it, a day and a night, he disappointed Brown by declining to join him, considering the, his, the mission suicidal. To Douglas's surprise, Green went with Brown instead of returning to Rochester with Douglas, and Brown said that Green told her that Douglas promised to pay him on his return. But David Blight called this much more ex post facto bitterness than reality. Almost all that is known about this incident comes from Douglas. It is clear that it was of immense importance to him, both as a turning point in his life, not accompanying John Brown 
and its importance in his public image. The meeting was not revealed by Douglas for 20 years. He first disclosed it in his speech on John Brown at Storer College in 1881, trying unsuccessfully to raise money to support a John Brown professorship at Storer to be held by a black man. He again referred to it stunningly in his last autobiography. After the raid, which took place between October the 16th and 18th, 1859, Douglas was accused both of supporting Brown and of not supporting him enough. He was nearly arrested on a Virginia warrant and fled for a brief time to Canada before proceeding onwards to England on a previously planned lecture tour, arriving near the end of November. During his lecture tour of Great Britain on March 26, 1860, Douglas delivered a speech before the Scottish Anti-Slavery Society in Glasgow. The Constitution of the United States, is it pro-slavery or anti-slavery? Outlining his views on the American Constitution. That month, on the 13th, Douglas's youngest daughter, Annie, died in Rochester, New York, just days shy of her 11th birthday. Douglas sailed back from England the following month, traveling through Canada to avoid detection. Years later, in 1881, Douglas shared a stage at Storr College in Harpers Ferry with Andrew Hunter, the prosecutor who secured Brown's conviction and execution. Hunter congratulated Douglas. Douglas considered photography very important in ending slavery and racism and believed that the camera would not lie, even in the hands of a racist white person, as, fo as, fo as photographs were an excellent counter to many racist caricatures, particularly in black-faced ministerials. He was the most photographed American of the 18th century, consciously using photography to advance his political views. He never smiled, specifically so as not to play into the racist caricature of a happy slave. He intended to look directly into the camera and confront the viewer with a stern look. As a child, Douglas was exposed to a number of religious sermons and in his youth, he sometimes heard Sophia Auld reading the Bible. In time, he became interested in literacy. He began reading and copying Bible verses and he eventually converted to Christianity. He described this approach in his last biography, Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. I was not more than 13 years old when in my loneliness and destitution, I longed for someone to whom I could go as to a father and protector. The preaching of a white Methodist minister named Hansen was a means of causing me to feel that in God I had such a friend. He thought that all men, great and small, bond and free, were sinners in the sight of God, that they were by nature rebels against his government, and that they must repent of their sins and be reconciled to God through Christ. I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me, but one thing I did know well, I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. I consulted a good old colored man named Charles Lawson, and in tones of holy affliction, affection, he told me to pray and to cast all my care upon God. This I sought to do, and, through, and though for weeks I was a poor, broken-hearted mourner, traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. 
I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everybody converted. My desire to learn increased, and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the contents of the Bible. Douglas was mentored by Reverend Charles Lawson, and early in his activism, he often included biblical allusions and religious metaphors in his speeches. Although a believer, he strongly criticized religious hypocrisy and accused slaveholders of wickedness, lack of morality, and failure to follow the golden rule. In this sense, Douglas distinguished between the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of America and considered religious slaveholders and clergymen who defended slavery as the most brutal, sinful, and cynical of all who represented wolves in sheep's clothing. Notably, in a famous oration given in the Corinthian Hall of Rochester, he sharply criticized the attitude of religious people who kept silent about slavery and held that religious ministers committed a blasphemy when they taught it as sanctioned by religion. He considered that a law passed to support slavery was one of the grossest infringements of Christian liberty and said that pro-slavery clergymen within the American church strip the love of God of its beauty and leave the throne of religion a huge, horrible, repulsion form and an abomination in the sight of God. Of ministers like John Chase Lord, Leonard Elijah Lathrop, Ichabod Spencer and Orville Dewey, he said that they taught against the scriptures that we ought to obey man's law before the law of God. He further asserted in speaking of the American church, however, let it be distinctly understood that I mean the great mass of the religious organizations of our land. There are exceptions, and I thank God that there are noble men may be found scattered all over these northern states. Henry Ward Beach of Brooklyn, Samuel J. May of Syracuse, and my esteemed friend Robert R. Raymond. He maintained that upon these men lies the duty to inspire our ranks with high religious faith and zeal and to cheer us on in the great mission of the slave's redemption from his chains. In addition, he called religious people to embrace abolitionism, stating, Let the religious press, the pulpit, the Sunday school, the conference meeting, the great ecclesiastical missionary, Bible and tract associations of the land array their immense powers against slavery and slaveholding and the whole system of crime and blood will be scattered to the winds. During his visits to the United Kingdom between 1846 and 1848, Douglas asked British Christians never to support American churches that permitted slavery, and he expressed his happiness to know that a group of ministers in Belfast had refused to admit slaveholders as members of the church. On his return to the United States, Douglas founded the North Star, a weekly publication with the motto, Right is of no sex, truth is of no color, God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. Douglas later wrote a letter to his former slaveholder in which he denounced him for leaving Douglas's family illiterate. Your wickedness and cruelty committed in this respect on your fellow creatures are greater than all the stripes you have laid upon my back or theirs. It is an outrage upon the soul, a war upon the immortal spirit, and one for which you must give account at the bar of our common father and creator. Letter to his old master, to my old master, Thomas Auld. Sometimes considered a precursor of a non-denominational 
liberation theology, Douglas was a deeply spiritual man. As his home continues to show, the fireplace mantle features busts of two of his favorite philosophers, David Friedrich Strauss, author of The Life of Jesus, and Ludwig Feuerbach, author of The Essence of Christianity. In addition to several Bibles and books about various religions in the library, images of angels and Jesus are displayed, as well as interior and exterior photographs of Washington's Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church. Throughout his life, Douglas had linked that individual experience with social reform, and like other Christian abolitionists, he followed practices such as abstaining from tobacco, alcohol, and other substances that he believed corrupted body and soul. By the time of the Civil War, Douglas was one of the most famous black men in the country, known for his oration on the condition of the black race and on other issues such as women's rights. His eloquence gathered crowds at every location. His reception by leaders in England and Ireland added to his stature. He had been seriously proposed for the seat of his friend and supporter, Jarrett Smith, who declined to run again after his term ended in 1854. Smith recommended to him that he did not run because there were strenuous objections from members of Congress. The possibility afflicted some with convulsions, others with panic, more with an astonishing flow of exceedingly select and nervous language giving vent to all sorts of linguistic enormities. If the House agreed to seat him, which was unlikely, all the Southern members would walk out, so the country would finally be split. No black person would serve in Congress until 1870, just after the passage of the 15th Amendment. Douglas and the abolitionists argued that because the aim of the Civil War was to end slavery, African Americans should be allowed to engage in the fight for their freedom. Douglas publicized this view in his newspapers and several speeches. After Lincoln had finally allowed black soldiers to serve in the Union Army, Douglas helped the recruitment of efforts published in his famous broadside, Men of Color to Arms, on March 21, 1863. His eldest son, Charles Douglas, joined the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, but was ill for much of his service. Lewis Douglas fought at the Battle of Fort Wagner. Another son, Frederick Douglas Jr., also served as a recruiter. With the North no longer obliged to return slaves to their owners in the South, Douglas fought for equality for his people. Douglas conferred with President Abraham Lincoln in 1863 on the treatment of black soldiers and on plans to move liberated slaves out of the South. President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which took effect on January 1, 1863, declared the freedom of all slaves in Confederate-held territory. Slaves in Union-held areas were not covered by this War Measures Act. Slaves in Union-held areas and northern states were freed with the adoption of the 13th Amendment on December 6, 1865. Douglas described the spirit of those awaiting the proclamation. We were waiting and listening as for a bolt from the sky. We were watching by the dim light of the stars for the dawn of a new, new day. We were longing for the answer to the agonizing prayers of centuries. During the U.S. presidential election of 1864, Douglas supported John C. Fremont, who was the candidate of the abolitionist Radical Democracy Party. Douglas was appoint, 
Douglas was disappointed that President Lincoln did not publicly endorse suffrage for black freedmen. Douglas believed that since African-American men were fighting for the Union in the American Civil War, they deserved the right to vote. This comes to the conclusion of the show. Next week's show will continue on the life of Frederick Douglass. Thank you for listening. You can reach me by email, barbarab at newheightseducation.org. Be sure to join me every Sunday at radio.newheightseducation.org, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as I discuss the history of civil rights. Also join Pamela Clark's pre-recorded shows, which airs Wednesday by 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Civil rights is our right. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings. Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring CuriosityStream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. At less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com.